Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different starting over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in for another episode. Today I have on an American woman called Emmy Marie who is a trauma-trained coach. I think Emmy is such a good example of somebody who has really transformed her pain into purpose. Her first experience of romantic love from around age 15 to 18 was with somebody who had narcissistic personality disorder. If you know much about that, you're going to know that They are typically manipulative, abusive relationships with somebody who doesn't really have a capacity to empathize. Not a wonderful recipe for a relationship. She left, but she was left with many symptoms of trauma, including flashbacks, nightmares, anxiety, and suicidal ideation. But she is now in a happy and healthy long-term relationship, and she is a certified trauma-informed life coach who really specializes in helping her clients to create thriving lives and relationships after trauma. So some of what we discuss on this episode is, of course, her own experience with trauma, what was instrumental to her in healing herself and learning crucially to love again after being hurt. I know this is a question that I get regularly from people because, of course, this is a running theme with this podcast and also what I share with my own story too. Really, how can we learn to love and open ourselves up in a vulnerable way that is going to be nourishing and healing after being heartbroken? and hurt in quite often very serious ways. So we discuss a lot of that and also share some differing perspectives on what unconditional love means. And also just the idea that it is okay to have differing opinions. And sometimes we often shy away from doing that, especially those who have people-pleasing tendencies, because we don't want to rock the boat or we don't want to create an uncomfortable situation. And something that we really discuss here is, Let's look at this like we would a thriving democracy, whether they exist or not, of course, that's another matter, but it should be a forum for open discussion and differing ideas where you can maybe see yourself in something and maybe not in another, and that's perfectly okay. Now, if you're new to this podcast, welcome, and I encourage you to check out some of the other episodes if this one is speaking to you. For example, if you struggle with anxiety, a very popular one I recently did with Anna Papuano on overcoming anxiety or episode 16 with the ex-wife to the wolf of Wall Street where Dr. Nadine Macaluso on finding wisdom in our wounds also previously an episode with Dr. Herbert Abernethy on trauma shame and complex PTSD There are a bunch of resources here and I really hope that this podcast is going to be a platform that helps you along your healing journey and to live your best life. But with no further ado, here is my episode with Emmy. Emmy, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm really, really happy to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I 
wanted to actually jump right into a little bit about your personal story before going into your professional journey and some points of wisdom that you can distill and share with our listeners. So this podcast, as you know, is all about people having a starting over experience. And that is often a personal difficulty, a moment of suffering or hardship that somebody has faced in their life, but something that they have grown from and something that they have used to follow a new trajectory in life and hopefully one which is a little bit more bright and full of meaning and purpose and joy and all those good things that we're hoping to have. So the first question I really wanted to ask you was, what is your own personal starting over story? Has there been a a significant difficulty that you have faced in your life that has led you to a higher consciousness and a different personal mission, let's say? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And I love the way that you frame this as a starting over story. So this is something that I talk about in my work all the time is sort of starting over after abuse and trauma and toxic relationships, which is directly tied to my own personal starting over story. So yeah, basically my story is when I was 15, I got into a relationship with essentially my first love, so to speak. Um, And it was your very stereotypical narcissistic relationship where it began with an overwhelming amount of attention and love bombing. And I, at the time, was really desperate to be loved as many 15-year-olds with big hearts and deep feelings are. I grew up watching things like The Notebook and other sort of like romance stuff where just feeling like Uh, Love was my purpose for existence. And the only thing I wanted was to be seen and loved in that way. So when I found that, so I thought it was like a dream come true. And really for the first three months, I was just head over heels. And then after those first couple months, he would become coercive and he would use a lot of like subtle making fun of me or criticism or judging the things that I loved in a way that wasn't this outright screaming at me at first or physically harming me, but a lot of subtle manipulation and abuse tactics to really erode and degrade my sense of self, my sense of self-esteem, which as a 15-year-old girl in America, you know, is already sort of something that is difficult in those teenage years to have at all, uh, like a solid sense of self-esteem and Mm self-worth. So instead of adolescence being a time of sort of like exploration and self-discovery, it was a time of being degraded and humiliated and abused by someone that consistently was telling me that they loved me. And I was really attached to and hooked on, essentially, So long story short, it was about a three-year-long relationship. And like I said, it started with those kind of subtle abuse tactics, really descended rapidly into somewhat of a codependent relationship where he was an addict, he was a criminal, um, and I was sort of defending him to everyone around me and really loyal to the end. Uh, what I thought would be my end, uh, my own demise. I really thought there was no escape for me. I was never going to get out of this. He was the only one that ever would, you know, be right for me. And then it got to the point where it never, it did not feel safe to leave. And it was very clear to me that if I left, he would hurt himself or me or my family. Uh, So it was really terrifying and really brought my mental health down to 
rock bottom, uh, to say the least. And then through sort of a incredibly serendipitous experience, I found the means to leave him at the end of our senior year. After that, I sort of just tried to move on and forget what had happened and sort of have the more traditional starting over story, I think, where you hear, oh, an abuse survivor leaves the abuser and just life is good now. And you're just so grateful and happy. So I went off to college and sort of just tried to forget about what happened. But now I know that when it comes to trauma and particularly complex trauma, we can't just escape something that has really defined our reality and deeply impacted our nervous systems. So over the next two years, I really just ended up repeating the cycle of being in relationships that were really unhealthy and not emotionally fulfilling or stable until finally in 2016, I left another long-term relationship that was unhealthy and said, I'm done. Like, I, I cannot do this anymore. Um, so that was a really big turning point for me and deciding I'm not going to tolerate mistreatment in relationships anymore. And right about then was when I started having a lot of symptoms of trauma, like flashbacks and nightmares and in extreme anxiety and paranoia. So I started going to therapy and getting help for that. And then I really entered my healing journey, so to speak, in earnest, where I was just reading all of the books and listening to podcasts and just absorbing any resources I could about healing and recovery from trauma. Um, and while doing the work in therapy as well, and a whole bunch of other different modalities, eventually getting to a place where I found some nervous system regulation and really have felt safe in my body again. And then in the last two years, I've been helping others as a trauma-informed coach and educator and speaker. And I know we're going to get into that a little bit, but that's sort of the gist of my starting over story. I love that. And also, like I say, for so many people that I interview on this podcast, I have so much really deep respect and admiration for people who have navigated something very difficult and challenging in their life and they have come out of it and made the best of it. You know, turning this into yeah. something that you can actually be a service to other people who are going through difficulty, which you will know will make you feel good. You know, that's something that's actually really satisfying for us on the service provider yeah. end of it. But actually there's, yeah. there's a lot of beauty in that. Side note, um, I watched The Notebook too. And oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. This has like to, in the media. Oh, my God. How much does that to ha like have to oh, answer for, right, in all of our conceptions right. of what an ideal relationship should be and what, I like, know. romantic and ideal love should look like? Oh, my gosh. This should I know. be like and a it's whole like, podcast on itself. <laughs> oh, right? And there's a reason why those things are so entertaining, but that doesn't mean that they're healthy. It's because, like, a healthy relationship oftentimes is so super boring to watch. Like it's, you know, when you watch something on TV, you want it to be interesting and exciting and have like ups and downs, but that's yeah. not how you want your nervous system to feel in your most intimate relationship. So exactly. Yeah. And you're bringing out the point about nervous system, like our nervous system and regulation of that is exactly it. I remember when I came across some the first time I started looking into this sort of field of knowledge and so on, when I started hearing that our nervous system can become addicted to stress, essentially, yeah, I was like, are you kidding? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Why would we, why would we want that if that is so clear that that is detrimental to our health and well-being? And now yeah. over time I'm realizing, I don't know, even if that is illogical on some level, it is so true. It yeah. is so true and so present. Absolutely. 
Yeah. yeah it's, it's wild how our bodies and our nervous system and stuff can defy logic and reason. Um, yeah. Just kind of like how our emotions can also defy logic and reason too. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I wanted to draw out in particular in what you just said is your age, because I, yeah. the, the listeners who follow me regularly will know that I also separated from somebody narcissistic, somebody who most likely had antisocial personality disorder as well at around 24. But I think actually to have your first exposure to love and your first exposure to a so-called romantic relationship at 15 years of age, I mean, that is that really feels like something else because that is also giving you a whole frame for what to expect not only now but also in the future as well. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I can't actually imagine what that kind of did for you in terms of shaping who you became and your development from there on until you became, as you described, conscious of your situation and of your patterns of behaviour and and so yeah. on. Was there any, have you since, let's say that you started this healing work, well, now you've gone through the bulk of it, let's say, yeah. whether that be with a psychologist or read through your podcast that you described and so on, was yeah. there any point where you realized that that had come from something else that you had previously experienced in your life, an expectation that you had? Was there any link there to your familial experience mm. with your parent figures mm. or other people close to you? that shaped your expectations around love? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, so I'm very fortunate to have had a loving set of parents that were very emotionally available and, you know, like good, like nice, which a lot of people that end up in abusive relationships may have had abuse growing up or neglect. Mm. Um, So the thing with my family is I'm an only child of two parents who had a hard time with fertility and really, really wanted me, which is wonderful. Uh, and so I was raised, yeah, in a, in a home that had a lot of love. And my parents are both Libras, Enneagram twos for anyone who, you know, is aware of those things, but essentially they both love love. they both love relationships. They both believe in service and generosity and giving to others. And so I think all those things are really wonderful with like a healthy, nuanced, boundaried perspective. But um, that is one influence I would say I have is I think they always encouraged me to be loved as well, or just it was kind of like ran in the family, this desire to love and be loved. And so I took that and went so far on the codependency spectrum of, you know, accepting crumbs of love from someone in between rounds of abuse that my parents obviously never anticipated or groomed me for or anything like that. But that's kind of one of the only things I would say um, around that. I think for me, it was more of the sort of cultural societal things that I've already mentioned around, um, yeah, just being encouraged to just give your whole heart for someone and be loyal no matter what, which yeah. I once again took to the extreme, but yeah, I was really young. And something that I, I do mention quite often is, you know, going through something traumatic at that age in a romantic relationship is really interesting because it's like themes of domestic violence and very adult forms of trauma, but also I was a child, like, you know, your, your mind is still developing. Like I was going through puberty during all this. And so it's also influences of like developmental childhood trauma as well, which is Mm. a lot. Mm. (laughs) 
And I think going to your point about the media and you know our expectations of love, I think so much of that is also that we experience this big, wonderful cocktail of joyous, loving emotions. You know, yeah. and there's some kind of expectation that it should feel like that. So when somebody presents you with that very thoughtful and devoted, loyal yeah. kind of character in the early days, right. uh, we think that that's because this is what true love actually is. Little right. do we know that's symptomatic of a love bombing that is actually a strategic manipulative tool to right. win your affection only then to undermine and subvert your love and affection for them. Yeah. Exactly. What led you to separate from this person and then start mm-hmm. on your healing journey? Yeah. Um, so like I briefly mentioned, he was an addict and he was essentially trying to get me to go to my doctor to get a Xanax prescription for him to abuse. And at this point in the relationship, I was completely like under his thumb and was just like, okay, like, I don't want you to scream at me and threaten me. So sure, I'll go do what you say. So I go to my doctor, who's my family doctor, who's known me my entire life. And, you know, you get that, I don't know, at least here in the United States, they, when you come in, they give you a form where you indicate your levels of um, depression and anxiety symptoms. And so I was honest on the forum and said I was incredibly depressed and anxious because I was living in this abusive relationship. And so I get into the appointment and I'm like, I don't really remember saying I want Xanax, but that was, I think, I mean, that was my intention of going. And she was like, I think that um, you should try Zoloft, which is an SSRI. So an antidepressant instead. And I said, okay. And I came home and I called him and I told him, and he's like, you're going to leave me in two weeks if you start taking that. And I was like, no, I won't. I'll never leave you. You know, the whole spiel. And I started taking it because I just thought, why not? Like, might as well try it. I was pretty much open to taking anything at that point anyways. And you can't abuse SSRIs. Um, it's it's not like Xanax that you can get high off of. Um, SSRIs are something that take a while to kick in. And so I started taking it every day. And the the period for them to start working is about two weeks, which is why he said that. And lo and behold, um, they worked for me. And so I my mental health went from like rock bottom zero to like a healthy level where I was able to just look around at my life and be like, wow, like my life's really good, except for this one glaring, obvious piece, which is him. And so suddenly I felt like this influx of power where I'm like, oh, like I can eliminate you from my life. Like suddenly I had permission to do that. Um, And it's really hard to describe because I feel like the way I describe it, it sounds like it's a miracle cure. And I don't want anyone to get the idea that if you take antidepressants, you're going to be able to change your whole life or whatever. But I have to be honest about my story because that's how it happened for me. And so I, at the time he was in jail um, and he was supposed to be in for a while. He was in and out of jail. He started with like petty theft, larceny, and then he just broke probation over and over doing drugs. So I think it was probably one of those. I don't remember, but he was supposed to be in for about six months. And so I thought this is a great time for me to leave him because I'm safe. He can't hurt me. He can't stalk me. Like, I'm safe. And then I'm going to go to college. So I wrote him a letter and broke up with him. And then he got out a week later because things in the law system change all the time. And then 
he did end up stalking me and there's a whole thing there, but I was done. Like I was never going back and I was, yeah, <laughs> that was, it, it totally changed my whole life. So, yeah. Mm. And now how many years later is this now? That happened in 2013. So it's been over nine years. Mm. And there's zero contact. You've completely moved on. You are now with somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we still kept in contact that first summer because I didn't really understand trauma or anything. And I was just like, I would entertain his texts, I guess. And I would respond. But then after that, once I went to college, I just started ignoring him completely and saying, don't contact me. And then I heard from him once in 2016 and we had a very short, very stressful texting conversation that now I regret ever responding to. Um, and then actually in 2021, he started trying to contact me again a few times, but I was really firm with the no contact and didn't respond whatsoever. Um, and then, yeah, like two weeks ago, he actually tried to call me and it was, but it was the first time that he tried to call me that I didn't have a huge um, trigger response. And I was just kind of like, okay, uh, leave me alone. But yeah, so we have been completely estranged with no contact um, basically since then. And then, yes, I've been in a new, very healthy relationship um, for five and a half years. That mm. is wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about that because I think yeah. it is really difficult for people who have lived through a traumatic or abusive relationship to learn how to love again because your heart yeah. has been broken. Your trust has been abolished. You are not in a position where you are willing to open your heart and I hear even from people who listen to this podcast and draw on my example because I also had a similar story to you in terms of separating from somebody who yeah. had a similar personality disorder, somebody who was abusive, and I am now with somebody who I describe as being much more gentle, loving, kind, compassionate, all of those yeah. good things. And I know in my instance that that wouldn't have happened had I not have done the work and the work <laughs> of healing the past wounds that I had carried with me, not only from my relationship that I had that was abusive, let's say, but also things from my own childhood experience. But there is something very challenging for people to open themselves back up. So I would be really yeah. curious to hear how your experience in that was. Was there a part where, I don't know, you went out on a date and you're like, oh, is, is that true? I mean, that's certainly my oh, yeah. experience. I was like, oh, oh <laughs> alarm bells, alarm bells, red flag. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I, I absolutely love this topic. Um, I do a whole course about relationships after trauma. So when you're saying that, like a lot of people have a hard time with it, I've had over 240 people go through this course. So it's something I'm really passionate about helping others with. And yeah, for me, basically in that relationship, my abusive relationship, and then the few I was in after that, I had a very anxious attachment style, meaning I was really deriving my sense of okayness and worth from another person, which led to, you know, being victimized and abused and harmed. Um, and so after those things that I went through, I really did, to me, it felt very intentional, but I also think it was sort of like a subconscious thing where I really shifted to being more avoidant. And I, like you described, was like, I'm not doing this again. Like, I'm not putting my heart out there. But as someone who would be described as a serial monogamous, meaning I am like always in a relationship since that age of 15, pretty much, and which I used to find was shameful or something bad, but I think really just means like I really value people and being in a relationship. 
So anyways, I got together with my partner, Luke. And yeah, we met through a friend of a friend. And at the time, I went into this relationship with the intention of if there is a single red flag, I'm leaving immediately, which is incredibly harsh. But at the time, it was like, I have nothing to lose. Like, I have barely been single in my entire adult life. So if there's one red flag, I'm just going to enjoy my single life. But for now, he seems cool. Let's give it a shot. And so, yeah, basically, as we started getting to know one another, there was no red flags, uh, which was great. You know, he it's not like he's perfect, but there was no when I think red flags, I mean, like uh, someone being harmful or being really shady or um, making fun of you in a way that's like, you know, hurtful, like something that gives you a red flag, like cue of, whoa, this is similar to my past relationship. Um, So he was really stable and had boundaries and was kind and compassionate and didn't like merge his life with mine immediately. And so all of that was great. And then, yeah, as time went along, it started a, a thing that's really common is feeling like if you're in a stable and safe relationship, it can start to feel difficult when you're used to chaos and dysfunction. So when someone is consistent with you and uses clear communication skills and you're used to playing mind games and having to like hustle to earn your worth or like sacrifice yourself for someone else, it can start to feel like I, for me personally, I felt like I'm so damaged. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. He is normal. He is healthy. He deserves someone better than me. So that was sort of the things I had to work through within therapy and within a lot of moments of coming back to myself and doing lots of like journaling and really taking that time to heal that part of me that felt unworthy of a safe Mm -hmm. relationship. Can I just interrupt you and say how much I love that you share that message? Like, honestly, (laughs) that is so, that feels like so much solidarity and so much yeah. <laughs> support for people who have been through this. And I can honestly vouch for that being a similar experience for me too. Yeah. Somebody that I was with, it's like, oh, I'm the one who's got to work on myself because you've got everything sorted and I absolutely don't. There's something wrong with me and I need to fix it. And, and then of course yeah. you play all those stories about justice and why have I lived this life and you haven't and yeah. all of those yeah. things. But actually you just coming out and saying that like, I, I am not broken because I have lived through this. Like that is so valuable and so important. So, Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I really feel very comfortable kind of being honest about how I felt in those experiences because a big part of my starting over like cyclical healing thing journey has been moving through cycles of really deep shame and feeling like it was my fault for letting the trauma happen. That was a big one I had to work through or like having trauma means I'm not trying hard enough to get over it. I should be able to just forget the past. Why am I so crazy? Why am I so broken? And like, as I've learned about how trauma impacts the body and like how attachment styles work and all the stuff that I now teach about that has been illuminating, but also the like you know, it's not just education and silly like solves all of this, but yeah, moving through those moments of like that part of me saying, you know, I'm broken, there's something wrong with me and sort of seeing like, what does that part need? Like, where is that coming from? Um, how can I be more compassionate to myself along the way? And so, yeah, I, I advocate for that for other people now, but it's a, it's a huge part of my story. So mm. Before we go into a little bit about your professional work, I'm curious to hear what was 
very instrumental for you in your healing process? So for me, a lot of my healing process began with a lot of boundary making. So I made a huge boundary of moving from Washington down to California. So two states away where it was for a job, but it really gave me the chance to have a fresh start when it comes to who am I? Because I feel like, you know, I'm also an Enneagram too. I'm a Taurus. I got a Libra rising. I have all this stuff in my personality and in my charts and everything about um, relationships and humans. And like I said, I was very codependent in a lot of ways. So for me, I had to make this really bold choice to kind of start over and decide like, I am not going to be someone that sacrifices myself for anyone or anything anymore. Like I'm not doing it anymore. I can't do it anymore. There is no job or friendship or relationship that's as important as me being okay. Because at this point, I was very much in the midst of having complex PTSD and like struggling to function in some ways. So I basically made a lot of boundaries around my energy and my time and my capacity and started devoting myself to rest, to education about trauma. You know, I did therapy, which is obviously super important, but it was like, you know, one hour every other week. So outside of that, a lot of like alone time in safe environments, being with myself, processing grief, looking for cues of safety finding meaning, leaning into spirituality, stuff like that. So a lot of alone time. And I call that kind of my like hermit phase where I really had this like withdrawn thing. At the same time, yes, I was making friends with my roommates and like using those friendships as a time for like fun and lightness. Um, But kind of the next part in my healing journey came with like community and opening up to other people, which was absolutely terrifying to me for a really long time. And I I think I'm still in that stage where now it's, yeah, like widening to also encompass my business of realizing like, I don't have to do literally everything on my own, but you know, there was this whole time where I started sharing about my past on the internet. um, And that almost was easier for me than telling people in person, because you can kind of hide behind a screen a little bit and just block anyone that is going to victim blame you or whatever, which I've barely ever experienced, but it can be really hard to tell people even that, you know, are safe and, you know, love you because you have to sit right there and watch them take it in and respond. And, um, so anyways, starting to open up to other people and yeah, like bursting through that shame that said, don't talk about this. No one cares, like all of that. And Yeah. So those are some of the things that were instrumental Mm. in my healing process. Drawing on something you just mentioned there, what did opening up to spirituality mean for you? Yeah. So I kind of leaned into exploring things like tarot, um, yoga, meditation. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tara Brock, who teaches Buddhist practices and meditations while also being a PhD psychologist. So I find her incredibly trauma-informed And I did a lot of like acupuncture, which I guess isn't necessarily spiritual, but to me it felt that way. It's an alternative remedy. So I think it launched in the (laughs) spirituality bucket. Yeah. 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 And like, yeah, thinking about things like guides or sort of like a higher power in some way that had a comforting aspect on my life. Um, Mm. So yeah, that's what it meant for me. Yeah. Well, let's go now into your professional focus. So How and why did you decide to become a trauma-informed coach and non-practitioner? Can you break down what that actually is? 
Yeah. So first it decided with me to do a practice in 2019 called 10 minutes of creativity, where essentially I committed to doing 10 minutes of creativity every day. And as someone that never identified as creative, this felt very edgy and um, also exciting to have something to commit to as sort of like a New Year's resolution. And I decided I would create a new Instagram, not my personal Instagram where I had been posting since, you know, 11th grade or whatever. Um, And it was anonymous and it was just the place I went to share like what I wrote that day or if I took a photo or whatever my creative practice was so I could keep track of it and just look back on it. And it was public. Um, So after in about August of 2019, I started kind of using a couple hashtags like trauma recovery or whatever, because that's what I was focusing on a lot is I would be like reading books or just processing my trauma. And I would just share about it sometimes in like a poem or just like a little essay or whatever. Um, Basically, I was creating content, but just sort of for myself. But anyways, one time a post kind of caught some traction and uh, got a lot of likes and that felt good because I'm someone that really likes to help others. And it was just really validating when some people were saying, wow, this, I feel this, I resonate with this. Like, thank you for sharing. That felt really aligned with me. Um, I come from a background of environmental science, which I joined because I wanted to help like save the world with climate change, you know, that sort of like idealist valiant effort, but you know, entry-level environmental science is, um, yeah, science. It's, it's like going, doing field work. And I found that very dry and I missed personal interaction. So getting this on the internet, sort of having this place where I was sharing things from my heart and people were resonating felt great. So I was already posting every day anyways. So I kept doing that and sort of started gathering a following. And then through the winter of 2020, I was doing a lot more research of like how to grow an Instagram, how to like really do something with this, thinking maybe I'd become a writer. That was sort of an idea I had, but it was just really like a hobby to grow the Instagram and just meet more people and create a bigger sense of community. And then in the spring of 2020, I sort of learned about coaching and realized that that was an avenue for helping others that also felt incredibly aligned to me because I am someone that is really passionate about personal empowerment and um, all the things that are involved with coaching. So I got certified as a trauma-informed coach. And then a year later, did this training in NARM, as you mentioned, which is a modality for working with complex trauma that is typically used by therapists. But I find that it works really well with coaching too. Um, And I've done some other trainings and just, I've been educating myself about trauma for a really long time. Um, But, you know, the last two years, it was learning more about like how to apply that to coaching. Um, Yeah. And so I do that full time. I work with clients all over the world and I really like having a lot of different offers. So for example, I do, you know, one-on-one coaching where we meet on Zoom um, for about an hour and, you know, work through whatever's coming up in a trauma-informed perspective to help clients meet their personal, emotional, relational goals. Um, and then I also do courses. Like I mentioned, I have a course all about relationships after trauma. And then I also have like a low-cost monthly membership where I do a workshop and a community call where it's a really nice place for trauma survivors to feel like there are other people that experience similar things they do and aren't going to judge them and you know, you can make friends and also receive some support from me as well. So those are some of the things I do, but yeah, it's kind of my story about becoming a coach too. 
Yeah, and it's very nice to hear overall, like I said before, about making something positive out of what had yeah. been a difficult chapter for you. And, of course, that's Thanks. going to make people feel more comfortable opening up to you, knowing that you are actually going to be able to empathize rather than sympathize with what they're going through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something I wanted to speak about is this was something that, uh, you had posted on one of your reels on Instagram, and mm-hmm. I thought this could be potentially controversial as we don't have necessarily have a similar perspective on this, but a good point for <laughs> reflection and discussion yeah. nonetheless. Uh, and that is the topic of unconditional love. So I wanted to ask you, what is your perspective on unconditional love vis-a-vis romantic relationships? Yeah. So I also want to recognize that when I made that reel, I was feeling very fired up and sort of like aggressive in my take. And so I think it's great that you maybe have a different perspective and we can like talk about it as civilized adults, because I also want to make clear that when I talk about something like that from a personal perspective, um, it's just my opinion. Right. And it's something that like, maybe I feel strongly about. So let's just get into it. Basically what the realist. Oh, go ahead. No, what I was actually going to say on that is, you know, it's something that I don't often do on this podcast in terms of bringing up something that's potentially controversial or something that I could necessarily like disagree with the person I'm speaking with because I Uh feel like I want to connect with you and I want this to feel comfortable and nice. But then I step back from that and I realize actually when I observe the public sphere, for example, the political sphere where the whole basis of democracy in theory is civilized debate, which will encompass differing opinions. Now, of course, in practice, (laughs) we know that the debate is not necessarily always civilized. However, I think that we should really open up a space for that because I think when we look at the political sphere, for example, it becomes so incredibly divisive. You're part of this camp and you're part of this camp. And we can never see eye to eye. But I think actually there is a lot of beauty and people sharing in a respectful and mature manner a potentially differing point of view that the person who is listening or observing that can find themselves in. You know, and they can say, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, no, but maybe that is a good. And then it doesn't need to be anything vilifying or difficult about it. It can just be like, yeah, this is a different opinion. And on that note... I think something that, and this perhaps seems like a very spiritual comment to make, but I think our egos often attach ourselves to the perspective that we have and we see our perspective as being something that is a part of us. And therefore, Mm -hmm. when somebody disagrees with us, we go, you are attacking me. But I think we actually need to remove ourselves from that and go like, no, this is just some kind of energy thought bubble that I've chucked into the, you know, totally. energetic field all, all, all around me. And I can, and that doesn't need to be a reflection on who I am or my worth or my intelligence or anything like that. So with yeah, all of that in mind, point. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. let's just talk about unconditional love and what is going on yeah. with this? Let's just like raise yeah, yeah, some yeah. stuff here. Perfect. Yeah. So my hot take, which I very much shy away from doing any form of controversial hot take because because it's people please a bit much. Yeah. 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 And also it's like, it's just not me. I'm someone that kind of tends to see the value in lots of different sides. But anyways, so my hot take with this was basically that I don't believe that love should be unconditional. Um, and the clear distinction I made or I try to make is, um, 
love as an emotion might be unconditional as in like, you might love someone no matter what they do to you. And like, I've been there. Like I loved this guy, even as he was, you know, bringing me to a rock bottom place. Um, I felt love for him, which now I look back and I, I would call attachment, but whatever, it feels like love. We're told it's love. A lot of people love their parents, but make boundaries with those parents because they are harmful to them in some way, but the, the love doesn't stop. But I also think that love is a verb and love is a choice. Love is an action. And so I think that love as an action should have conditions as in, I am not going to choose to love you if you abuse and harm me and treat me with blatant disrespect, lying, cheating, manipulation. I'm going to choose to redirect that love towards myself and maybe people that treat me like I deserve to be treated. Uh, maybe I'll always feel love for you in my heart, but I'm no longer choosing to act on that love by allowing you in my life or, you know, so that's kind of my hot take about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually really love that you brought up this point of attachment. And that was something that I was actually going to mention as well. So yeah, just as the little debrief on some of, of what you sort of mentioned in your reel was one of your followers asked you, can we talk about how people are groomed into forgiveness and the quote, true love is unconditional and self-sacrificing end quote culture. And then we get blamed for not leaving. <laughs> I so get that. But anyway, you go on to add, when we teach people that to love someone means to never give up on them, to love them unconditionally, no matter what they do to us, we teach people to accept harm and abuse. We teach people that love is self-sacrifice and blind forgiveness. We teach people to ignore how they are feeling and how their own well-being is impacted. And we focus on the other person, on their potential, what we see in them, how we love them, rather than what they are doing to us. And this is one of the reasons why it can be so hard to leave abusive relationships because we think maybe they will change if I just love harder, if I forgive more, but the abuser will lap that right up. Can I just say when I read that, I I found myself in that because I know as somebody who's been through this myself now three years ago, four years ago, I felt that and I found it so difficult to be like, well, what is this? I do keep hearing that we should love people unconditionally, but what does that yeah. actually mean in practice? And I think your yeah. point about the attachment and the love can be very different because attachment often has a lot of expectations attached to it and therefore a lot of possessiveness and all of these other characters that are um, values that are much more ego-based. Ego and I think that can be really, really difficult to reconcile in practice. But I think yeah. what we could potentially consider an unconditional love, a true love, doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have any boundaries. Because I think where we often talk about unconditional love, it's often directed to others. It's like at the, the love that we should feel towards somebody else. But I think in that equation, we forget the love that we should show ourselves. And I think as somebody who I speak in the self-development spirituality space, and you do too in many respects, and we know that that self-love is often the most difficult to cultivate. And it's something yeah. that we struggle with so much more than showing love for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I do think there is, um, yeah, some great potential for unpacking the language around love 
which it sounds like is what you're doing is like unconditional, like actual real love can be unconditional without being harmful. Um, yeah. So that, that's no, but it is. And you're right. It is, it is language too. It's like actually like breaking things down and not just mindlessly consuming what other people tell us, whether that be from our wider media and so on, that we obviously absorb and form as part of our wider culture and then find ourselves in these situations and don't actually know what to make of it. But I do think in terms of, let's say, what I experienced in my relationship, would I say I have an unconditional love for my ex who was incredibly abusive? Maybe I'm trying. Am I there? Probably not. I think the part is that I realized that forgiveness healed me. That didn't mean that I forgave to the extent that I withstood difficulty. That meant that I would completely shoulder and absorb a lot of the derogatory marks and the frivolous legal suits and all of these other things without fighting Mm -hmm. back. No, that meant that I still did assert my boundaries but I could do that with a distant compassion a compassion that enabled me to look at him as a person who had gone through his own trauma and he had faced his own conditional love from people and the people that had abused and harmed him and that had formed the subconscious underlying core beliefs that he was not worthy and that this was his maladaptive pattern of being (laughs) in the world. But actually stepping back from that and realizing this is part of humanity and this is part of the common experience that, that that we all face. And what I felt in being able to take that perspective was that I felt more calm, more at peace, and ultimately more loving. And we know that more loving is a comfortable place to be. It feels good, right? We feel we feel softer, we feel open, and we feel warm. And it's often a feeling that we're seeking to have in many avenues of our life, in many areas of our life. So yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. And I 100% relate to, I have gotten to a point in my healing journey where I have empathy for him and I have understanding and awareness of why he did what he did. Um, but I used to try to manufacture that forgiveness like way before I was ready. So mm-hmm. like right from the jump when I'm like addressing the fact I was in an abusive relationship there, I just have seen so many narratives pushed of like, forgiveness is how you heal. You have to choose to forgive those who have harmed you. And so I felt like I was really like, I'm choosing to forgive, like I'm trying, but like my inner child and the parts of me that forgave him every day within that relationship by waking up and saying, okay, I'll give you another chance. I was forgiving him all the time. So I really needed a space to hate him. Like I needed a space to be like, you are terrible for me. Like you, you did that to me. You ruined so many parts of my life. Mm. So I needed to take a, a beat and like, let that be and let myself get angry and grieve, um, before I could process to the point where now I'm like, yeah, you're a human being that's flawed and you yes. had a terrible maladaptive coping mechanism. I wish you peace. I wish you no harm. I don't want you to stay in the cycle that you're still in. I want you to get better. Um, but I'm 
I'm, I have no part in it. I'm not going to help you. <laughs> I hear you, Gail. And you mentioning yeah. that point about grief. I mean, that's exactly what came up for me there is thinking there are stages of grief for a legitimate reason. This is something yeah. accepted and it's not going to be like, you know, dust your hands off the next day and like, yeah. oh, you know, I'm just so calm and chill about yeah. this. Hell no, yeah. you're going to go through yeah. stages where you're like, I wish if somehow you got hit by a bus tomorrow and called yeah. up and I don't know, like decided to set yourself on fire, like, that happens and that is a completely normal part of the process. And I think for anyone yeah. going through that, it's like accept that too because that is right. completely part of it. Right. Yeah. And I still feel like there's like for now, I in no way entertain any idea of revenge, but I notice myself like if I read a book or see a movie that has like a really good like survivor getting revenge plot, I'm like, I love it. Like I like lap it up. I'm like, oh, it's so good. And it's like, I feel like that's a healthy outlet for my inner child to be like, I wish I would have got revenge where my adult self is like, I wish you the best. I'm moving on. You know, it can all kind of belong in one (laughs) complex human. (laughs) So let's go a little bit to uh, the work that you do specifically with your clients. I guess you have people who have a wide range of trauma that they have experienced in their life, but what is something that you try to uh, impart on your clients in terms of trauma healing and recovery? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, yeah, the nuance of trauma-informed coaching being not therapy, but not like just regular coaching, I guess, life coaching is really, I'm usually working with people who have already done some therapeutic work or maybe have a therapist now but they're looking for support in making positive changes to move forward in their life. So a lot of times that's in relationships where, for example, they want to be able to better communicate or have boundaries or trust themselves or trust other people. And so a lot of the work that I do is helping clients reconnect to their true selves or to their adult consciousness or to their values and their strengths and like to see the good things about them and their own intuition to determine what is the right choice for them. So I used to kind of think coaching was like advice giving, but really that's like a slim percentage. If anything, it's more about asking the right questions to encourage someone to better understand themselves and then supporting them as they're kind of figuring things out in whatever area of their life they're working on with like a non-judgmental trauma-informed approach that understands like if you try something, um, like if you try asking for a raise at work and you completely choke and falter because you go into like a freeze nervous system state or something, that doesn't mean you're bad or broken. It means that was too much for your body to handle. What are some like creative strategies we could do to work with that instead of like, you know, that binary of like, I either do it perfectly or I am a failure and I suck. So I, that's some of the kind of like things that I work with my clients on. Mm. Are there any practical strategies that you would give to your clients to shift something in their mindset? Because something I speak about very regularly on this podcast and otherwise on my social media is the power that our thoughts have and that little voice inside of our head that can often be our biggest bully. And we know Mm. that people who have experienced trauma in their life often have a meaner inner critic, let's say. So what do you do in particular? What would you advise your clients to do in terms of managing that inner critic? 
I love this because I focus on this so much within, yeah, one-on-one work, but also a number of different like workshops and courses and like live talks where I focus a lot on understanding why shame exists and how it actually may have helped you in some way get through your past. Like, for example, if you were being ridiculed and verbally abused or something your entire life or in your family or in like friendships, and you developed this inner voice that said, yeah, I am bad. There is something wrong with me. I am terrible. That was a voice that helped explain your external reality so you could continue to function because our brains have to make up a story that fits what's happening to us. So kind of understanding why shame is present so we can better like have a grasp on it. And then I really advocate for creating a voice of self-acceptance, neutrality, and then self-compassion, self-love. So starting with how can you introduce more thoughts that say, I am good enough as I am, Um, like noticing little moments of success or like small wins that you make on the day-to-day that are healthy choices or things that support your well-being or make you feel happy, Uh, celebrating those little things you do and really acknowledging like, I chose to do that for myself. That was a choice I made. I have personal power and agency to do things that are good for me. So instead of just trying to like banish the shameful thoughts, which is also a thing that sometimes is necessary of like really like talking back and even getting angry at the shameful thoughts, but more so like building this other voice that is saying, I am worthy of good things. I am good enough as I am. So through, yeah, like self-care practices, uh, creating safe and supportive relationships, If you are someone that likes mantras or affirmations, there's that aspect. Uh, And just, yeah, taking moments throughout your day to notice, like, I have a choice right now to be kind to myself about that little mistake I made or to be shameful or like to shame myself or to be criticizing myself unnecessarily. What am I going to choose right now? Mm. Um, So, yeah, that's some of the ways I would do that. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Let's move to... Uh, last final few questions so the first thing I wanted to ask you was whether there was something that you used to believe that you no longer believe yeah I love that question so I think uh, one of the biggest things I've ever unlearned is that my worth as a human being is inextricably tied to what I can do for others or how many people like me or yeah, just my worth is what I can do for other people. That is something that I do not believe is true anymore. Beautiful. Secondly, what is one quote or affirmation that resonates with you that you would like to share? Your survival and resilience deserves to be celebrated. And I really like this concept or affirmation because I think surviving trauma is so often a thankless process where it's so hard, like healing from trauma, choosing to break the cycle. It's so difficult. And oftentimes maybe your therapist witnessed you, or maybe like one of your best friends, like they might see it, but no one actually knows what it's like to live in your body and have been through everything you've been through and choosing to make different choices for yourself. So your survival, your resilience, your agency, everything that you're doing, your healing deserves to be amplified and celebrated and seen for the powerful and brave act that it is. I love that. That's beautiful. (laughs) Thanks. 
Lastly, what is one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners who are on this journey or want to embark on this journey of meeting their inner self? I feel like when it comes to inner work, self-discovery, healing, it can be so easy to think that it's all hard work and it all has to be difficult and scary and like shadowy. Um, but that that absolutely has a place. But just remembering that it's also really revolutionary and healing to just do things that make you happy, that make you that feel fun, like you're having fun, um, pleasure, joy, like stuff that really makes you feel good is also totally a part of the inner healing process or discovering um, who you are and what you like to do. Uh, so yeah, I feel like that was something that I needed to hear at that point. So yeah, and that's so true, you know, because one thing I often say even on this podcast is like this healing journey is difficult, but it's worth it. But it's actually, there are so many beautiful, joyous aspects that come from this. And we often lose that because we have some yeah. kind of negativity bias. That means whenever we face something challenging, it's like, oh, and that is obviously amplified. But actually, there is so much beauty in this journey. And as we just amplify, like we can really seek a lot of our self in this and what we the life we want to build for ourselves the things we want to do with this limited amount of time that we have so that's right and on that note I would also just add to anyone listening that I went through times in my life where I was very frustrated at my seemingly inability to access joy love pleasure fun so if you're hearing this and you're like yeah that's nice like well it doesn't really feel like that to me I totally hear that because, and so I guess a hopeful piece would be like, it does get better. Like it does get easier. I don't feel like healing has an end date ever. I'm always still going to be working through my own trauma, but it becomes much easier when you get to a place of like somewhat stability in your nervous system where it's like, then you can explore creativity or like just, you know, find your favorite show and like not just be living in a world of heaviness and anxiety. So it gets better. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Preach, girl. Preach. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story with us today, Emmy. I really, really yeah. appreciate it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast. If there are any starting over stories that you would like to hear in particular, please don't hesitate to message me on Instagram, via email at hello at startingoverwithshannon.com, TikTok or elsewhere. And just lastly, well done for all of you listening and bravely doing the work. I know it's hard, but I know it's worth it.